Hello, and welcome to I Think You're Interesting. I'm Todd Vanderworth, the I in I Think You're Interesting. And if you are roughly of the same demographic as me, or just like watching classic TV shows on Hulu, then surely you'll recognize this piece of music. Or maybe, you know, you're you're a little bit younger than me, but you still really love great TV. You've watched maybe this show on Netflix. And surely, surely you know what this song is the theme for. I'm talking this week with W.G. Snuffy Walden, one of the most prolific television composers of all time, an Emmy winner for his work on The West Wing, but he's done great stuff with My So-Called Life, Friday Night Lights, The Wonder Years, Roseanne, 30-something was his big breakthrough. Literally, the list of credits is so long that if I read it, that would be the whole show. And we talked about his whole career while he was here. Uh, He's got a new CD coming out of music from the West Wing. It's well worth a listen. Uh, You may have forgotten how iconic some of those songs are. Uh, I was really happy to have him here as somebody who is a frequent credits watcher who all these years would see the name W.G. Snuffy Walden float by and be like, well, who's that? Uh, I was was happy to speak with him. I think you're going to enjoy it. Uh, I learned a lot about the process of composing music for TV, which theoretically I should have known about, but now I know so much more. Uh, So stick around. I think you're going to like it. Snuffy, thank you for dropping by. My pleasure. So I'm going to ask the obvious question. I've seen you answer this. I've read you answer this, but I got to know myself, the Snuffy, where does it come from? (laughs) I've never been asked that. (laughs) It comes from, I was born William Garrett Walden, mm-hmm. and my mom's maiden name was Garrett. And the biggest manufacturer of powdered tobacco, which is snuff in the South, mm-hmm. is a company called Levi Garrett & Son. So my mom and my granddad were always nicknamed Levi or Snuffy when we lived in the country in Texas. So mm-hmm. uh, when I grew up about five, I went to a summer camp, and they said, uh, what's your name? I said, Garrett. And they said, well, that's, that's too formal. We're not going to call you that. We're going to call you Snuffy. And so every summer I was snuffing at school, I was Garrett, and then music took over the summers, and the music took over my life, so it just kind of stuck. Yeah. When they introduced the Muppet with the same name, <laughs> how, how many times have people, like, given you Sesame Street merchandise and been like, oh, he'll love this? Never. Oh, wow. Okay. I've never had, nobody's ever done it. I mean, I've been called Snuffleupagus. Yeah. The joke, but I've never gotten the, the gift, so... So what, what's uh, one of the reasons I wanted to have you on is there's a new uh, CD. Uh, I don't believe there's also a digital download version of the West Wing music, the West Wing soundtrack. I, I want to talk about it in the context of your career because before you did West Wing, I, I was a, an avid credits watcher. So I knew you mostly as like a guy who did kind of acoustic guitar, like that sort of thing. And then West Wing is very bold and sweeping. Uh, and I'm wondering, obviously, you had worked with Aaron Sorkin and Tommy Shlomi before on, uh, on Sports, Sports Night. Night right. But, like, when you came in and got West Wing, what was it like sort of approaching that creative challenge that was kind of outside of what you'd done before? Well, I, when I first started scoring, I was just playing acoustic guitar stuff. And after I did about two or three scores, I knew that if I kept just doing that, I would be— pegged as a guy who just does acoustic small ensemble acoustic guitar scores 
So for a show called I'll Fly Away, I bought a grand piano and wrote the score on piano, mm. learned how to play. And So when this happened, originally, I was doing sports night, and we were toward the end of the season, and Aaron comes to me and says, listen, I'm, gonna do, I'm doing this show about politics, and I think it's going to be a real Americana kind of guitar score. Yeah. He said, would you like to do it? And I, I loved his work. I was, you know— a, Doing sports night was so wonderful, and I read the script, and it was remarkable. I said, yeah, I'd love to do it. So that's what it was going to be. It was going to be maybe, you know, a little orchestration, but primarily Americana guitar. Well, once they did the pilot and started putting it together, they're putting John Williams and, you know, all this classical music against it. And Aaron came to me and said, well, you know, we've been, we talked about guitar, but now it looks like this stuff's really working great. Can you do this? And I said, the only thing... Uh, Musician who knows he's about to be out of work said, I said, sure. <laughs> and then I went to work and uh, learned what I could about it, enlisted the best people. And I have a dear friend uh, who's passed now, James Horner, and kind of picked James' brain. Yeah, yeah. And just talked to people about it. And then I wrote simple melodies okay. that in that Aaron Copeland world— right come off as uh, Americana and uh, and and I did it with instead of acoustic guitar with French horns and yeah. and woodwinds and stuff and, and I just had to learn on the job yeah and you won an you won an Emmy for the theme song of yeah. that show which is uh, I think one of the iconic theme songs for a lot of people and tell me about the genesis of that you say it's a very simple melody which it is but also it has this it has a grandeur to it tell me about the how you found that sound that piece of music came. We had, didn't have a main title yet. People were writing songs. Randy Newman wrote a song for it. Uh, different people were writing songs for the main title because we weren't sure what it was going to be. That theme was the cue I wrote for the end of the third episode mm. where President Bartlett is doing a, a talk to America out of, his, out of the Oval Office. And that was a, just a theme I wrote for that moment. And it was kind of grand and it, and it lifted up. And Tommy Schlamme came over to my studio, and because I was playing him cues early on because we had enough time. And he heard that, and he said, that's it. I said, that's what? He said, that's our theme. Mm. And I went, wow, okay. So I orchestrated it. Uh, I, I designed it and arranged it to fit in a main title sequence. And then I had a fabulous orchestrator named Brad Dector come in, and he did a beautiful job. And I got to give him so much credit for that. He was... Uh, he was remarkable in that. And we did, in the end, we did two orchestral sessions for West Wing. Mm. That's all the orchestral sessions we ever had time or money for. Yeah, yeah. And that piece grew out of, it grew out of organically out of the show and just became the theme. So did the did the sort of stripped down version of it at the end of episode three, did that remain? Yes. I, I know. So, so. I guess when I first saw it, I was thinking, oh, they're doing a repeat of the theme song, but that was actually the genesis of it. That's kind of cool. Yeah. Um, does that happen often, that like a piece of music that you write for an episode takes on a life as, not the theme song, obviously, but like maybe becomes a recurring theme or something like that? It, it does often. I mean, I find, you know, every vehicle has its own character and has mm -hmm. its own personality. What I find speaks best to the materials once I can immerse myself in the stories and the characters and and build a tapestry, then I can pull either threads from that tapestry or combine it all together to create something that's memorable, that 
that links people to the characters and the feeling of the show. 30-something, the theme came after we wrote the pilot score. Uh, West Wing, same thing. Uh, some of the others, you got, you've got to write them first. Yeah. I mean, it really depends upon the situation, the timing, because television's pretty fast. Do you have memories of other like memorable cues you wrote for West Wing that you you that stick in your head as stuff you really liked uh, working on? Yeah, there's so many of them. I mean, there's one where Bartlett was walking through an airport and walking down this long tunnel, and and, and there again, you have to remember, I've never seen the series. <laughs> I've only I wrote it, and we were writing it so fast and producing it so fast. I knew it was special. Yeah. But I never watched it. I didn't watch it on the air, and I've never watched the box set or anything. So things that I remember are like when Leo had his heart attack, and uh, I don't know. There's so many moments in that show. How can you? How can you pick? It's like trying to remember your your favorite child. You know. <laughs> well, it's interesting what you said about how you've never watched the show because. Typically in TV shows, the music is brought in for really emotionally potent moments. So you've seen a lot. I mean, are there shows you've worked on that you have watched? Or is 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 that kind of how you work? You don't go back and see them in context. I kind of stopped after the first few years because I never feel like I'm done. Mm. I feel like I run out of time and money. Yeah. But that I'm never done with the art. It never – I mean, my job is to put art on top of somebody else's art. Mm-hmm. And so in a delineated time schedule, a very short schedule usually. And so I found after a couple of years of doing 30-something in the Wonder Years that I was never happy. Uh, all I could see were the flaws. All I could see is where I could have turned here. Why did I do that? So I stopped watching okay. on the air. I mean, I always watch the shows before I score them, so I know all the story points. And then I work through the score generally – in a linear way, sometimes not, but most often that. And then I find that when I finish it, it's the closest to sounding like I hear it mm. because it's not compressed on the air. There's not a lot of dialogue and effects. There's not, and I, so I've just kind of over the years, I just don't watch the shows. Mm. Yeah. So tell me about the experience then of watching a show like The West Wing or, you know, like you've worked on so many other great shows, My So-Called Life, and you're currently working on Nashville and some of these others. The experience of watching a TV show and essentially its greatest hits form, if that makes sense. You're only seeing the scenes that are like emotional high points. Right. Or something that needs to be fixed. Yeah. <laughs> it's generally 911 or it's an opportunity to enhance the expression right. of the sentiment that we're dealing with. Uh, my job ultimately is to make the director like his movie more. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and for me, you know, good music is second to the story, always second to the story. It's always being sensitive to the arc of a scene, being the, sensitive to arc of an episode, and then in terms of long-running t- series, being sensitive to the arc of the entire series, which, mm-hmm. which I learned so much from two sets of great filmmakers, Ed Zwick and Marshall Hershkowitz, who right, I right. did my first stuff with, and Aaron and Tommy. Right. So, you know, I've gotten a master class from these guys. Yeah, so, yeah. Uh, what's it like? Uh, well, it's a blessing for sure. I've been given so many wonderful vehicles to be able to write with. I, I'm very hard on my own work, so right. I, I don't see it the way other people see it. Yeah, yeah. I, I have a different view of all this. Right. You know, I'm just still trying to get through a scene or get through a job or. Yeah, definitely. Well, tell me about like 
You say that your job is to enhance the story. Tell me about the process of learning that lesson, um, like figuring out when it was too much or when it was maybe too little even, like when, like how to hit that right middle ground of, of enhancing the story without overpowering it. First off, I, I never went to school. I never learned how to read music or write music. I don't have any musical education. So for me, it was just picking up a guitar when I was doing 30-something in the Wonder Years and playing until something emotionally started to happen between the music and the film. Mm. And then I would finesse that. Marshall and Ed in the beginning, because they're both writers, gave me constant, let's call it direction, <laughs> to be <Yeah>. gracious, but <laughs> constant direction on, on what the arc of the scene was about emotionally. I mean, they approached it as writers, and they forced me by, whether we rewrite cues or, or by manipulating cues or doing whatever, to understand the arc of their scene, understand what the point of the scene was, right. and to approach the music like the writer does. Really see the arc of a scene, the arc of the episode. Because you can have a great scene early on, but if you play it all there, you know, the rest of the episode will go flat. So. Yeah. They were really helpful in teaching me that. Uh, with Aaron, I learned something totally different, which was the more developed his characters became, the less I had to do. Right. The, the paintbrush got finer and finer and finer to the point where toward the end of the seven years, I, I could barely touch a scene because the characters were so beautifully developed and we had, we had so much experience with them that anything could overpower. Right. Any, any broad stroke would just overpower the moment because they were so sensitive and we were so into the characters and things. So every vehicle, every movie I do, if you want to call a series a movie, they all have to take on their own character. But, but my big two teachers, my master class, were those two sets of guys. Yeah, yeah. You say you, you didn't read or write music. Um, how did you become a composer <laughs> like how did that how did that happen i guess well i was out here performing i i had had a whole career in the 70s playing rock and roll living mm -hmm. in england doing playing with bands like free and had a band called stray dog and we toured the world with emerson lake and palmer did all these things and ended up out in la as a touring musician and then in 1982 i got sober and kind of quit playing for a little while and then started playing locally clubs. And I was playing at a place. I was actually out touring with Shaka Khan and touring with Laura Brannigan and Eric Burden, these different people. And I played at a place called At My Place, which was here in Santa Monica, 11th and Wilshire. And an agent walked up to me one night and said, but have you ever thought about composing film and uh, television? And I said, no. And mm. she said, well, Rikuders priced him out of the business as a market. Would you like for me to pitch you for a few things? And they did. And I didn't have any cues. I'd never written music for scenes. But she got me some interviews, and I got close. And then I went and met with these guys that were doing this, what they kind of thought was a throwaway pilot. Uh, and I went and took some film and wrote some cues, and that was 30-something. Yeah. So the first time I ever had any sense of what the job was, was when I wrote for that pilot. Yeah. What, how, how, like, as a, that show just instantly became 
people loved that show. The people who watched it loved that show. And it instantly became this thing. So you went from not having really composed for film and TV to working on an incredibly loved television show. What like that? How did that function as a crash course? Like, were there moments when you were like, oh, I've gotten in over my head, you know? I was sure for the first 10 years that they were going to find out I didn't have a clue what I was doing. <laughs> uh, you know, I just put one foot in front of the other. I was working 14, 15-hour days because I really felt behind the eight ball because everybody else had been to Berkeley mm -hmm. but me, yeah. you know, and I didn't write and I didn't read and they could all orchestrate. The truth of it is I was the right person with the right lack of of education and the right lack of uh, what that was for that show. Right. I was a child of the 60s, was a guitar player. Folk music was very much in Ed and Marshall's background. Ed was a guitar player. All the all these things just clicked together, mm -hmm. and uh, it was a soundtrack of the 30-something people, which I was a little older, a couple of years older than Ed and Marshall, but it just clicked together. And what I did... Although it was a crash course in learning, what I intuitively did gave the show a different personality. Yeah. I mean, if you'd have told me to do a show with strings and flutes and clarinets and put a gun to my head, I couldn't have done it. Yeah. But I could play a guitar. And I borrowed an acoustic guitar to do the 30-something soundtrack because I was an electric guitar player. Yeah. yeah. So I didn't even play acoustic guitar. Yeah. So I approached it differently. It really had a, a different sound from anything else on TV at the time. I mean, everything about the show was different from anything else on TV at the time. But you mentioned the folk music thing, and both 30-something and The Wonder Years, kind of your first two really big assignments, like have that that real feeling of uh, being steeped in 60s music without actually without like directly quoting 60s music like right. who were who were some of the bands or musicians that you were looking at as you were composing that music and thinking of and who were influences on you for 30 something and i wish i could remember the name of this band it was a quirky band uh like all art students mm -hmm. and i can't remember the name of the band they had cello and ukulele and accordion mm. and they played all this weird music with percussion that was what Scott Winant, who originally met with me and gave me the film for 30-something, that was a band he quoted. And I, I can't remember, something string band, uh, something quartet. Anyway, that was kind of a model for me to start mm -hmm. uh, in the 30-something process. With Wonder Years, they tempted a lot in the original pilot because they came to me after 30-something was on the air and they said, we've got this little show that's going to air after the Super Bowl. Would you be interested in doing it? And they were temping with a lot of Simon and Garfunkel. Yeah. So that first year or two, for season and a half, we used vocals. Hmm. Um, so it was like Simon and Garfunkel intros or something. And that's kind of was the one influence I got from the showrunners hmm. that I kept my mind up. And, and what really happened is a lot of stuff that I just played for years sitting in front of the television just goofing off, yeah. all kind of came out. And uh, and I guess I ended up kind of having a style. I, I, it wasn't thought out. It certainly wasn't thought out. You mentioned the Simon and Garfunkel in The Wonder Years, and I'm thinking about also, you worked on Friday Night Lights many years later, mm -hmm. which the film version of Friday Night Lights has a very kind of iconic score by this band, Explosions in mm -hmm. the Sky. And they used some of that in TV and then got away from it, I think, as their budget became tighter. How do you replicate 
a kind of sound without, you know, either stealing it and also still sort of keeping it your own? Like, how do you replicate, like, a f- sort of iconic, famous sound without, yeah. Well, they did such an amazing job on that film. I mean, Peter had a fabulous thing going with explosions, uh, but he was tracking everything, which was interesting. I believe he got them to try to score some, and because they didn't have the cinematic sense, they did musically, mm-hmm. but they didn't, it didn't work them scoring scenes the way Peter did. So Peter ended up laying those things in. So when, um, when I got involved, I had a template. I had a template that worked really well in the open scenes of Texas uh, drylands and football games and all that stuff. So what I did is I started from that template and did a pilot, which was actually a little different than where we ended up. Mm-hmm. Uh, after I did the pilot, uh, a friend of mine came in with me because on the pilot, I played more bass than guitar. Yeah. It's kind of odd. Mm-hmm. But Bennett Salve, who I'd who'd been a dear friend and I'd worked with for years. He gave me my first job as a, a TV musician. Mm. Um, he came in and we we would write it and then we would go off with another guitar player and use some of my stuff, but use another guitar player and build it like a, you build a record, like single tracks on top of single tracks. And we used Explosions in the Sky absolutely as our as our template. Mm-hmm. But we never you know took their melodies or took the, but we did... Borrow and I always give them credit for the the beautiful marriage that they ended up between their music and that film. It was just a beautiful chance. And I, you know, I, I, well, I go a different way when yeah. I do what these guys did. And they couldn't, it wasn't financially feasible, nor was it time feasible for them to actually be involved in the show. Right, right. Yeah, you, uh, you mentioned earlier you grew up in Texas right. and Friday Night Lights for a lot of Texans I know like hits something specific about that world. What was it like like living in that world again, you know that you had grown up in? It was really uh, comfortable. It's like putting on an old pair of shoes. Yeah. I mean, I lived in a little town of 800 people. Uh there were like 14 kids in my 5th grade or 6th grade class and you know high school was it. Yeah. And so I got to go back to that. Although, oddly enough, a lot of people think that Friday Night Lights is about football. It's not. It's yeah. really about the characters, and it's really character-driven. But I know those people. Mm-hmm. I, I would see characters float in and out. i go, yeah, well, that's my <laughs> Uncle James, you know. And, and so from that point of view, it was really comfortable. That particular show we wrote very fast, yeah. wrote it fast, and spent the primary time on the production uh, there was much more time spent on production than actually writing it because writing it was second nature, especially once we had a template. <laughs> and then the the real time went into the production of all these guitars and getting them to all flow and just, it was easy for me. Oddly enough, Friday Night Lights was easy for me. Yeah, yeah, interesting. Um, you, uh, you, you talked about how quickly you wrote that and like, what is your schedule like? Because you're working on four shows right now. Like when you get a cut of an ep- not a cut of an episode, but a cut of the scenes you have to score, like how quickly do you have to turn that around? What's that process like? Well, I always watch the shows before I sit down with the producers. Mm-hmm. And then we spot the shows, which is look at the places where we need to, to add music or take music away because they'll put a temp score in it. And then I walk away with a full film. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I start writing to that. And 
the show I'm doing, Reverie, we have three weeks from the time we spot it until we dub it. Yeah. Until I need to deliver the music for the mix where they mm -hmm. combine all the elements. With West Wing, I was down to a, a day and a half or two. Oh, wow. By the end of the seven years. It went so fast. Mm -hmm. So they're all different. Generally speaking, I have a week from the time I get the film to the time I have to deliver my finished product. Yeah. But if you're doing a bunch of shows, you've got two or three overlapping in that week. So mm -hmm. it's pretty crazy making. It's like a jigsaw puzzle. You just got to, and all the parts keep moving. I'm sure when you're doing multiple shows, how do you, how do you situate your brain and like, oh, I'm going to switch from this show to this show? Like, how do you get your brain in that different space if you're working on all of them over the course of a, the single week? I had to figure that out early because I had a lot of, I've always done multiple series every year for the last 30 years. I've had at least two or three on every year. And the key for me was to create a different palette for each show and a different feature for each show. Start with a tapestry that's not anything like what I'm doing on the other shows so that you have a specific sound, which I think is very important, especially in television. Because when I was growing up, I watched the Andy Griffith show. And every time I heard, <laughs> you yeah. know, I was running to the TV. Yeah. Because I knew that was the Andy Griffith show. And that mm -hmm. was something I was going to watch. And I think that's missing a little in television now, the iconic theme songs that bring people in. And they're trying to get a lot more information in the 40-some-odd minutes we have. So so I believe it's important to have a sonic signature for every show. Yeah. And that's where I start. I I make sure before I sit down to write that I'm my palette is in front of me and I know what I'm working on. And that way you don't. You don't all of a sudden listen to a show, a show, a Friday Night Lights cue, and go, "Wait a minute, I did that on Sisters." Or, yeah. you, know, you, don't, you don't want to do that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, what kind of like what? Who do you? Who are you working with? Like, do you have? Do you work with musicians generally, or is it uh, done in a computer? I know different composers work differently. Well, you know, I have a recording studio down in Woodland Hills, and I have a match set up at my home, mm. so I do all the writing and sketching. That I do. Also, I have a, a, a fellow that's been working with me about 10 or 11 years, Patrick Rose, mm -hmm. who who now co is co-credited on these shows with me that I'm doing now. I'll do one out of every two or three mm -hmm. by myself, but generally Patrick's involved. And what we'll do is we'll write from two different places. He'll write from his house. I'll write from my house. And then it all gets put on the internet, goes to the studio. Then we all get together there with musicians and we augment what we've written, mm -hmm. or replace some of it with mm -hmm. real guitars and real instruments. And uh, it depends. Each show has a little bit different factor, but it, it is always writing away from the studio and then combining it all there right. with musicians and doing the mixes and, and mixing it all to picture and mixing it so that it fits with the sound effects and stuff. We had, there was a lot of um, consternation over The Simpsons recently dropped its <laughs> live Alf. orchestra. And that was really a... Uh, that was really, uh, I think it really hurt that show in some ways. Uh, like what, but also obviously TV budgets can't afford <laughs> gigantic orchestras. So like when, what's kind of the extent of the size of group that you've worked with to score one of these shows? Like have you ha ever had, the, like you you mentioned the West Wing, you did have that, those two sessions with like a full orchestra. But, 50 pieces. Yeah, like how common is. is that, I guess? It's, it's rare. It's... Uh... I mean, Simpsons was amazing. I think Alf did 28 years or something. Mm -hmm. And I think it's just a sin he's not doing it anymore. Yeah. 
I, I actually I wrote him a note and said it's just wrong. Mm. But politics aside, I work in this business. Uh, you don't get a lot of opportunities. I was able to do it on off fly away a little bit. Mm. I was able to augment with string sections, or um, one thing I did for NBC uh, called Surface. We actually did a big recording session in Bratislava. Mm. Uh, over the internet where I had them, you know, spend eight hours of a day doing all these orchestral effects and stuff that, uh, and so we got to lay them into the show as, as we needed them because you just can't afford that. I mean, that's not a, on a television budget and, and as much of the budget it is, it's the time to actually create it and then to have it transcribed and then orchestrated and then booked and then do the session for me, not being a schooled musician, uh, it was so time-consuming yeah. that it pushed the writing part of the process, crammed it. And and I, I'm better with a small ensemble. I, I enjoy it. It's more personal to me. I, I Because I'm an artist first. I was a guitar player first. I approach it more like a record than I do as opposed to going to a scoring station. Neither one is right or wrong. Sure. They're just different styles. If you're hiring, you know that quality hires keep your business moving forward. But you also know it can take a lot of time to find the right candidate for the job. With ZipRecruiter, you can post your job to over 100 of the web's leading job boards with just one click, so you can rest easy knowing your job is being seen by the right candidates. Then ZipRecruiter puts its smart matching technology to work, actively notifying qualified candidates about your job within minutes of posting so you receive the best possible matches. That's why ZipRecruiter is different. Unlike other hiring sites, ZipRecruiter doesn't depend on the right candidates finding you. It finds them. You can even get a head start on the interview process by adding screening questions to your job post to help identify the most qualified candidates. It's no wonder 80% of employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate through the site in just one day. And the easy-to-use ZipRecruiter dashboard lets you manage your hiring process from start to finish all in one place. You can find out today why ZipRecruiter has been used by growing businesses of all sizes and industries to find the most qualified job candidates with immediate results. Right now, my listeners can post jobs on ZipRecruiter for free. That's right, free. Just go to ZipRecruiter.com think. That's ZipRecruiter.com think. One more time to try it for free, go to ZipRecruiter.com think. ZipRecruiter is the smartest way to hire. Do you, the TV composers, do you all know each other? Like, are you all, do you all hang out every Tuesday or something? No, I, it's really funny. I have, I make a point of the guys who I really admire. I call them or I write them and tell them what a great job they're doing. I don't feel, I, I've been blessed there again. I've worked a lot, but I don't feel a competitive sense between my friends. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, we don't see each other much at all. We mm-hmm. talk on the phone and complain and, you know, chit-chat. But we see each other once a year at a big dinner, maybe, and we'll bump into each other at the Emmys or something like that. But for me, I pretty much live in a bubble. And I live in a bubble of the musicians I work with, the engineers I work with, Patrick, and my family. Yeah, And um, that's kind of what it's taken to for me to get the body of work that I've gotten. Mm which ultimately I think was always my thought. It's not about how much money do I make, but it, what does the body of work look like? Yeah. And, and I'm, for the most part, proud of the body of work. 
Yeah. I don't listen to it, but <laughs> but I'm proud of it. I'm really proud of this CD we did for for West Wing. Although I I thought, you know, that, that was 15 years ago. We'll never do that. And then Bryce came to me and said, would you be interested? And I said, sure. N- never realizing what a project it was doing, going through seven years of music and trying to figure out what to put on a double CD. <laughs> that was more work than I expected. When you sat down and listened to all that music all these years on, like, did it in, was, was there stuff in there that you'd forgotten? Was there stuff in there that you were just like, wow, I, I don't remember writing that, but it's great, or, you know? Yeah, for sure. Absolutely. There were there were tons of moments where I went, wow, that that was pretty good, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, as I went through the scores, what I tried to do is first select the larger pieces because I didn't want to just edit a bunch of little things together that didn't have any sense. So I delivered everything on that double CD is as it was written in the show. Mm-hmm except for two pieces. Uh, and two pieces have just two parts. Mm-hmm. So otherwise, everything was as written, as recorded. And and I thought that was important to give it a sense of flow, not just a bunch of minute-long cues. Yeah. So that narrowed it down a lot. Um, you know, you write so much music and you don't, you don't have time to remember it all. Mm-hmm. Uh, people get on me about, well, why don't you play this song, you know, live from your your music by CD. And I go, I can't play it. I mean, it's been 15 years. So yeah, there's a lot that happens really quickly. To be honest, there's a lot of the music that comes to me, like the main title for West Wing, that came to me pretty complete. Mm-hmm. You can call it God, you can call it the cosmos, you can call it what you want. When I'm clear enough to be a vessel, music flows. Mm. And, and so it, it doesn't feel like it's me a lot of the time. Interesting, interesting. I'm there. Yeah. So I remember a You're lot of it, but it. yeah, I'm present for it. What's, what, what's sort of the opposite of that when you are not feeling it, and you have, but you have a deadline and you have to just like gut it out? Like what muscles have you built up to be able to do that? Well, that's the craft. Mm-hmm. You know, you can look at a scene and there again, I was trained by some of the best. You can look at a scene. Okay, well, this is the arc of that scene. This is what they're talking about. This is how that's relative to the beginning of the show and the end of the show. When there's not inspiration, there's craft. And after doing close to 70 TV series now in the last 30 years, I've, I've got that muscle pretty, pretty well worked out. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's, the harder part is to reinvent myself for every show. You know, I couldn't just keep being the acoustic guitar player. I couldn't just be the piano guy. I couldn't just be that. I always have to change my sense of expression. Right. And I think the music always is anything I write is going to be basically simple and hopefully heartfelt. But it's not going to be Stravinsky. It's yeah. not, we're not going there. But, you know, I dig as deep as I can for as long as I can, and then I have a job, and my job is to get that music out by this day, and it's got to work, and it's got to be good, and it's got to fit. And when I run out of inspiration, I just do the lifting. Mm. I don't know how to put it any other way. Yeah, no. What's the most shows you've worked on at one time in your career? I remember it as 10. Mm. People are telling me it was nine. Okay. It was 2000, 1999 or 2000. And I had Providence. Here's the ones I remember. Providence. uh, Oh, gosh, what was the name of that show? It was a show about aliens. Roswell? Roswell, yeah. It was Roswell. Uh, I had Providence. Roswell, Sports Night, West Wing, 
there were five dramas, and I also had Drew Carey. I had uh, Roseanne Show. I had uh, another show that I did with, with with one of those comedians that only lasted one show. One series. I, I can't remember. That's yeah. eight, maybe. Uh, but it was too much, and yeah. it nearly killed me. And, uh, you know, I just had to do nothing but write music, and I would show up for the sessions most of the time. But I had a crew of guys, and John Williamson worked on Roswell with me. Bennett Salve worked on Providence with me. I had co-composers, mm -hmm. credited co-composers, because I don't believe in the ghostwriting thing. I know yeah. some guys do that, but I don't believe in it. So the guys that worked with me on shows got their screen credit, and they got their QC credit, and they made their money, and that was the right thing to do. But it it was too much. It, I was pretty crisp after that year. When you told me you were working on four shows at once, I was like, wow, that sounds like a lot. But <laughs> in comparison. It's a lot now. It's a yeah. lot now. The demands are different now. Yeah. The demands have sped up. They can, uh, the editing is not the same. They can change a whole show with a punch of a button and go back to an old edit. They can, it's, it's the information highway is so much faster that makes it makes it easier for them to demand more of a composer. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And plus, everybody's tracking their stuff now. So the editor, by the time he finishes his cut, has already put all his favorite John Williams music in or his James Horner music or his Tommy Newman music. And and then, you, then they're kind of sold on that. So you've got to find that happy balance between doing what you do and not offending their sensibilities of what they're so used to. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you mentioned you worked on Drew Carey, Roseanne, some of those shows. And one of the things that I think is notable about sitcom scoring, especially multi-camera sitcom scoring, is that it's often you see an establishing shot and there's like a little piece of music that just like orients you in that space. What's the challenge of that, of like having three seconds to write something where you're like, oh, we're at Roseanne's house, you know? It's a lick stealer. It's like every lick you've ever played, every <laughs> melody you've ever done, and you got to do it in five seconds. Yeah, uh, They're not... I did some. I I did some for a period of years, probably seven years, seven or eight years, where I actually was doing multiple half-hour shows. I, I kind of don't do them anymore. I don't find it as rewarding. I don't find myself as good at it mm. as some other guys. Um, I think I've said pretty much what I can say in that in in inside the confines of that. And mm. and I prefer uh, character-driven drama. That's really. I mean, right now we're doing an action show. We're doing a fantasy show. We're doing a show about country and Western music. And and I just finished a show about a Hollywood kidnapping, 10 yeah. Days in the Valley. So, And that's on the air on ABC. So, you know, it's a kind of, it's a lot to think about. Right. For right. sure. But, but, you know, I love the work, so. Yeah. You mentioned that the deeper you get into a series, the more work the characters can do to carry a scene and the less you have to do. But is there so, like sort of, I guess, especially early on, like, in these long-running dramas, do you find pieces of music attaching themselves to certain characters in the way that, like, you think about John Williams' film scores. They often have a piece of music that goes with Darth Vader, that goes yeah. with Luke Skywalker. So do you find that happening with various characters in the long-running shows? It's the old Peter and the Wolf yeah. kind of thing, you yeah. know. Uh, there's the wolf. There's the wolf music. Yeah, you use that. You use it in two different ways. Sometimes you use it with orchestration, the the timbre of the instrument you're using. In other words, you know, I might go to a cello quartet for something like early edition, mm -hmm. and you find certain themes sometimes latch in with people, certain sounds sometimes latch on to people. Sometimes it's really the nature of the whole piece. Mm -hmm. um, 
you get a bit of everything. Yeah. It, it kind of depends on the way it starts and who, you know, you might be doing a show for two years and all of a sudden the real shift has come to what was a, a B-story character. Mm-hmm. And so you you have to kind of be fluid with that and move. I, I don't I don't make any rules when it comes to that. I don't have any set things that I do. Mm-hmm. Uh, but they're all dictated by the film. Ultimately, every choice I make is 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 driven by the films. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, Bartlett was obviously the president of the United States, so he's a powerful character. He's a character who carries with him a lot of gravitas just by virtue of who he is. Were there were there ways you tended to write for him or or things that you established that kind of I'm just thinking of like examples of how uh, you would write toward a certain character. Martin Sheen was the only one that I knew I could pull the theme out on. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I didn't, if you've watched the series, I rarely ever used that theme. Mm-hmm. I, I would, I would very careful with it. Mm-hmm. I didn't end every show with it, didn't play it every time Bartlett walked in the room. I was just very careful with it because it was, it was special to me, number one. Overuse would have made it kind of hackneyed, but you could play that simple little gospel melody, which is all it is. You could play it in so many different formats. I could play it with clarinets. I could play it with with French horns and have a grandness. I could play it um, with just strings, and it would be heartfelt. Mm-hmm. Didn't use it a lot, but Bartlett was the one guy that I could always play that theme for. Yeah, yeah. Martin was great about it. You know, yeah. he was. He always called me when I'd see him. He'd say, ah, it's the music man. That's what he always called me. <laughs> That's great. Um, you uh, you mentioned that you were a, a touring musician for many years. And I was looking on your IMDb, and this may be incorrect, but like one of your first credits is you were on, on screen in Laverne and Shirley <laughs> as one of the squig tones. I just, I got to hear the story. I don't have a question. I just, what, what was that like? That's my question. A friend of mine, Bennett Salve, was yeah. working on that show. He was uh, he wasn't scoring it, but he was working on there. I don't know how I ended up doing it, but <laughs> but the funny thing about it was I ended up being one of the squig tones on the set, and those were the days when I was still drinking. So they kind of got rid of me after I kept drinking, trying to drink the beer on a hot set. You know, you can't move anything on a hot set for continuity. Uh, and I became friends with Penny, and I became friends with Michael, and ended up going out on tour with Lenny and the Squeak Tone back in, this is in the 70s, probably 77, 76, I don't know, somewhere in there. Ended up touring with them as one of the Squeak Tones, and we were doing a lot of the music from the uh, the documentary they did, Spinal Tap. Spinal Tap, yeah. So we were doing Big Bottom and all these songs that Michael was writing at that time, and they were just kind of happening, but we would go, we, we toured up and down the West Coast. <laughs> and it was just kind of a fluke, really. I'm not sure how I got into it, and I got to know Penny. Yeah. And so I was around for a little bit, um, you know, just an on-stage, on-camera guy. Yeah, yeah. Had long hair, and I, I guess they cast me for whatever, I, and I don't know why. Maybe, maybe I was already working with Michael and... Or auditioned for Michael and then did the squig tone thing or maybe went the other way around. I don't remember. Mm-hmm. I was still drinking. It was a long time ago. Yeah. You you mentioned your sobriety a couple times. You sort of see that as like, was that, did you, like, how how did that, the process of becoming sober, like, how did that help your work, your art? Like, like so there are some people who are wedded to this idea of like, they they need the 
that lifestyle to be able to create. And obviously you've had great success in your sobriety life. So how did that help you come to where you are? Well, I don't think with, for me personally, without sobriety, none of my television scoring would have happened. Mm-hmm. Would have happened. I, I, I wouldn't have been able to handle the rigors, the schedule, the organization. Uh, I was a rock and roll musician. I, I loved it. I lived the life. We toured around the world as an opening act for Emerson Lake and Palmer, and I saw it all and did it all and, uh, and wasn't successful at it. Primarily not because the band wasn't good, because the band was great, The Stray Dog, but we didn't have the songs. Mm. We just didn't have the songs to Brent to cross over into commercial radio. So so slowly as I, because I was in my early 20s, and slowly over the course of the time that I was here in L.A., it got progressively worse and worse and worse. And, and I always performed well because I, I was careful not to be too loaded or drunk or whatever before I played. That was always sacred to me. But afterwards, it was, everything's off. So when I got sober, I quit playing music. Mm. I actually tried for a year to get sober and couldn't. So at at the end of, after a year, I had my last drink in Sydney, Australia and got on an airplane and came home and never had another drink, but quit playing. Mm. Quit performing, uh, quit gigging for about a year. And then, I kind of got drugged back into it, and right when I was five years sober, everything changed for me. I was That's when I did 30-something in the Wonder Years and got married, mm. married my wife of 30 years, and everything changed for me. And I believe when I was willing to give up, I had a choice. I had to make a choice whether I was going to play music or live. Really, mm. that was a choice for me, and I chose to live. And I believe because I made that choice, I got music back times 100. Mm. So I had two totally different careers, and they've both been great, and they've one's more successful than the other. But I, I credit it all to uh, to my higher power and to the grace I got of of that moment where I admitted I was powerless over alcohol. So, do you do without you, getting too into it? No, that's fine. That's fine. You mentioned not that the band was good, but you didn't have the songs, and like. <laughs> How do you realize that? Does it come to you in like a thunderclap or do you just like realize the songs aren't going? Like, like how did you come to have that realization? Or maybe it came many years later. Well, Chris Kimsey, who produced everybody from the Rolling Stones and all this stuff, was the producer on my first record. And, you know, the band were great players. We were fabulous musicians. But our songs were vehicles for us to play. Mm. Where a songwriter writes a song... And then you play it. But our songs were vehicles. I mean, it, Van Halen used to do covers do do covers of my songs when they were a local band. Uh, you know, a lot of the guitar players were really big fans. I played on in records with a band called Free a long time ago when Paul Kossoff was out of that. I recognized it today. I didn't recognize it then, but. It's really about the song. It's the combination of the song and the artist. And we had the artistic part down. Mm-hmm. And we were doing a world tour with a primarily instrumental band. Mm-hmm. Emerson Lake and Palmer did all this Tarkas and pictures on an exhibition and, right. and electrified it. And so we were the three-piece blues version of that. But we weren't songwriters. Mm-hmm. And a songwriter, when I hear music, the first thing I hear is the music. And the mm-hmm. second thing I hear is the lyric. A songwriter hears the story. Yeah. And uh, so I don't really can, although I write songs, I write them 
with other people, but primarily from a musician's point of view. Have you pulled from that your your rock days for your TV scoring? Like, have you pulled melodies or things from that? Yeah. Sure, sure. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, Drew Carey, I always thought of as uh, uh, the Rolling Stones with with accordion, you know. Mm, yeah. <laughs> Roseanne was always blues, and, and depending on how long they'd let me stretch, I'd get to really play some electric blues, which is what my roots are. Little pieces. I did a... Um, a miniseries for Stephen King, which is also coming out next week, eight CD package, did a thing called The Stand, mm -hmm. uh, where it was all acoustic and electric guitar, and I got to really delve into that. A lot of times in television, because you don't want to be out front and you don't want to damage the arc of the scene, you can't be forceful and yeah. dramatic as a guitar player. You have to be very subtle. So yeah. I, I've used it in some... I haven't done the guitar, electric guitar score I want to do. That maybe will come one day. Yeah. The stand was probably the closest to it. Yeah. Uh, one of the shows that you've scored that I just love is My So-Called Life. <laughs> uh, and that theme song, that the music for that show captures being, I was a teenager when that show aired. So it captured like my experience of being alive. But obviously you were not a teenager when you were writing it. How do you like, and you've done a lot of other shows about teens. Like, how do you get into that more youthful space within yourself to write music? I'm a kid at heart. Okay. You know, it's, it, you really, musicians don't really mature, I think. I mean, especially when it comes to playing music. I mean, it's, I was talking to somebody about it the other day. When I'm performing and in that place, whether it's performing in the studio to film or performing live at a gig, once you cross over to where it's just the music and the space, you're timeless. Mm. You don't, I mean, there again, I did, I always do homework on those things. I studied the style of what was going on. I tried to consider the period. But uh, all of that stuff is me and one other guitar player. And, you know. Hopefully, I stayed youthful. It worked for you. It you didn't for feel me. like it was it some old guy playing me. music. So. I I had the my so-called life soundtrack CD, which was like all these alt rock hits, and I'd listen to those. But I listened to the theme song over and over. I don't know. I was imagining myself in a television show. I guess. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, we've talked a lot about like your your the shows you were on that were hits. You've been on shows that were not hits. Yes. What are some of those shows that maybe lasted just a few episodes that, like, you're, you really are proud of your work and are sad that, like, it didn't have a larger audience? My So-Called Life is one of those. Mm -hmm. We only did 18 episodes, and yeah. it took us three years to do those. Mm. And Claire Danes grew up over that period of time. I mean, when we did the pilot, she was a little girl by the time we finished the last episode, mm -hmm. which was just the end of that school year. She was Claire Danes. Mm. Uh, that's a difficult question. Mm. I, I don't know that... Any of them, I think the shows where I really resonated with the show and really felt that I was doing wonderful work, I think they all had success. Mm -hmm. And there were some shows that were really good that didn't have the success. And, and all those things come into the, to the vibe of what you're doing and, and what's going on behind the scenes with the show. Yeah. Uh, when a show's struggling, there's generally a lot of fear associated there's a lot of panic associated, so it doesn't get the chance to relax and be, yeah. uh, because there's a lot of pressure on network television to be big and be now, mm. you know. So, I, I, nothing really comes to mind. No, that's that's fine. Who are some of the like younger composers or people who are just sort of breaking in that you are seeing their work and are really impressed by it? 
That's interesting. Interesting question. The guys, John Williams was always so big for me that, right. and went so far over my head not being <laughs> schooled. I really love his scores. James Horner was a huge influence for me. I'm trying to think of the the new guys. Uh, Michael, now help me with the name. Giacchino? Uh, Michael Giacchino yeah. is a good example. He's mm -hmm. done wonderfully. He came up and I was working with some guys on Felicity. That's one of the shows that was going on that 10 run. I was working with the guys on Felicity, and Michael came in with J.J. right after I quit doing Felicity with them and has had this astounding career. And I loved his work from the minute I heard it on Lost mm -hmm. and uh, have a great appreciation for Michael. His work ethic is phenomenal. He manages to have balance that I never had. You know, he'll work his work day and the day is done. I, I was never able to do that because I was constantly trying to make it better. I always yeah. kind of felt like I was behind the eight ball. Giacchino is wonderful. Uh, Sean Callery, mm. wonderful composer. Yeah. Um, he did 24, right? He did 24. He yeah. did, did all that stuff. Sean's a buddy. Uh, Jeff yeah. Beale's another fabulous composer who does beautiful work. And a big body of work. Mm -hmm. uh, those are, you know, and those are more my contemporaries than up and coming. Yeah. I mean, they're all probably 20 years younger than me, but I still consider myself in the running because I'm still, uh, people still call me. Right. And I'm blessed for that. I, I don't know any of the real young ones. I just met a young guy named Noah Sirota, who mm. I have a feeling is one of those. Yeah. Uh, he was recommended by my agent to me uh, to look into and... Uh, Apparently, he's a, a protege of Spielberg, and, mm. and they like him over there. And, um, and I've spoken to him a bunch. He's a really good guy. Yeah. His music's really good. I, I honestly don't have time to keep up. <laughs> That's fine, yeah. And I don't have time because I'm not competitive. I don't feel I, I need to be, nor have I ever felt that way about, you know, that we're all— I think this is—I get all the work I'm supposed to. So. Right. Right. How do you get a job then? You mentioned you have an agent and like I hadn't thought about that, that like composers will have to have agents too. So how like how do you get a job? Do, do they usually come to you or are you like sending out reels or how does that work? 90% of my work comes from existing relationships mm. or existing work I've done. Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, Aaron Sorkin came to me because he loved 30-something. Right. Uh the people I just did 10 Days in the Valley with came to me because uh, I worked with the director on West Wing. Mm -hmm. uh, the SEAL show we're doing now, I know Chris Chulak because he works with John Wells all the time, and I did West Wing with John Wells. So sure. it, it's usually a form of a relationship. In, in the case of Reverie, I got a call from the guys at, at uh, DreamWorks because I always tell them, listen, if you need any help, just call. We'll just... You know, mm -hmm. we'll, we'll help you out in pilot season. And they called, and they needed some orchestration for a song. So we did it, and then that put us in the running, and they said, well, would you write a couple of cues? And I said, if I talk to the showrunners, I'll, as long as I know what they want. Yeah. Otherwise, I, I won't shoot at it blind. But we talked to the showrunners, and we went, and Patrick and I wrote some music, and they loved it, and so we were doing the show. For most young composers, it's a matter of a collection of work and enough reels, and getting enough attention from the showrunner or the director to actually really listen to the music and use their imagination. Yeah. Otherwise, so much of it, I'm afraid, is built on reputation and the fact that you can deliver. Yeah. And so 
younger guys have a hard time breaking out of that. Once you break out of that, I, I went from zero to 120 with uh, 30-something in the Wonder Years. That's very rare. Yeah. Uh, I, I was just blessed. Yeah. But with the younger guys, I know they struggle. They struggle to get their music out. It takes a high-powered agent, and and even a high-powered agent like Gorfain Schwartz can't do, can't get the music played all the time. Yeah. And that's what I find the young guys struggle with. Yeah. And the business is changing. The money's gone down. The royalty structures is threatened. I mean, the whole business has changed since guys like, I mean, Post was the guy before me who's a dear friend of mine, Mike Post. Yeah. And then there was kind of that era where I was in there and there were a lot of John Debney and all those guys. And now there's a new era and it's it's changed a lot. Mm. But what I think for those guys, it's it's just getting above the noise. You know, yeah. that's the hard part. It's getting noticed. Yeah, yeah. Because there's some fabulous composers out there. We're coming into the end of the show, uh, and I want to ask you, what's a TV theme song you wish you had written? Andy Griffith. <laughs> I thought you might say that. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I you know, listen. I mean, how can you beat Hill Street Blues? Yeah. How can you beat Hill Street Blues? I mean, really. I, I love Mike's work. And I didn't watch a lot of television before I started scoring. Mm -hmm. So I've seen more, more of Mike's work traveling around the world than I, than I ever saw when I lived here before I was composing. I, I guess there's probably some iconic ones. Really, the thing that resonates from, from my youth is Andy Griffith and the Twilight Zone. I yeah. wish I, the Twilight Zone was amazing. Yeah. Yeah. And still, you know, I have every DVD of The Twilight Zone. Yeah. And I've watched them all. <laughs> so I, that's probably one. Yeah. Uh, but it's not even that I wish I'd written that. Uh, I hope that some of the pieces of my work touch people in the way those pieces have touched me. Mm. Mm. Um, I, I have very little envy or any of that about other people's work. I, I'm always loved when I'm moved. Tommy Newman always moved me. Mm doesn't matter what he does. I go to see a movie if it gets terrible ratings if Tommy did it. Yeah. Just the way I am. Certain people speak to my heart. Right. And that's what really counts for me. Well, we're going to uh, ask you, we ask all our guests some of the same questions at the end of the show. So we're going to ask you a few of those. The first one is like, what's the last movie you've seen or TV show you've watched, book you've read, just like the last album you've listened to, the last pop culture thing you've taken in and what did you think of it? I don't do much, but write music and <laughs> hang with my family. I, I just saw a bunch of moving films. I was just at the Washington West Film Festival where okay. I'm on the board and saw some lovely films there. And we well, saw the first screening of a documentary they just finished on me. So those were fun. I think the last movie that I thought was really an experience was Dunkirk. Mm. I thought Hans really stepped up to the plate in, in, in giving it Making it an experience, yeah, rather yeah. than just a, a movie. You know, uh, some of the movies I've liked recently. Uh, I love the movie about. I think it's Arrival. I, yeah, I love that movie. I yeah. thought that was really good. Anything Tommy Tommy does, yeah. uh, I always call uh, my buddy who does Twenty Four. He does a bunch of other shows, and I always call him and say, oh, "I love this. I love this. Did you write this cue?" You know. <laughs> I don't watch a lot of television. I watch, uh, I'm afraid to say lately, more politics than I watch dramatic mm. television. But I've, you know, I've seen so much over the course of of the years. I think the last 
really stunning thing I saw that I enjoyed was a show called, I can't remember the name of the night before or the day of. The night of. The night of. Mm -hmm. The night of. I thought that was very compelling. I liked uh, True Detective. Yeah. Mm. Those guys. I mean, I'm pretty selective. Yeah. Yeah. It's hard to find appointment on television anymore. What's it like seeing a documentary about yourself? Is that unnerving? That was interesting. I, you know, it has, you know, it has everybody from the people who are my tour manager in the seventies to Martin Sheen and Aaron Sorkin and mm-hmm. Marshall Herskovitz. I mean, it's got all the Shaka Khan's in it, uh, Tim Bushfield, all these people that I've worked with. Mike Post, the, I'm in it. In, in watching it, it's a little too much about me. Mm. I'm, I'm not really that much about me, but. They told me for a couple of years, they tried to talk me into doing it. And they finally said, you know, this might inspire somebody who's having a hard time, who ends up having the experience you've had in your life where you've had just such a blessing on the uh, in the second career. And, and I said, okay. Yeah. So yeah. it was interesting. It was beautiful. I saw a film I've never seen before of me and my family and mm. got to hear some of the things, some of the things Tom Arnold said weren't very nice. Mm. Uh, but most of all, it was really a... a a humbling experience, but yeah. a beautiful one too. Yeah. What's uh, who's the musician you've learned the most from that you've never met? Jimi Hendrix. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I actually met him. He walked into a studio once in Memphis when I was living in Memphis years and years and years ago. Uh, and the aura. Mm-hmm. Two guys had that kind of aura, and one was Elvis Presley. Maybe it was the time of my life, and one was Jimi Hendrix. And those are the two. And I didn't shake hands with him or meet him at all but I was in the aura and the radius of and they were intense Eric Clapton as a guitar player you know was always special um, I, I tried not to listen to Hendrix too much because I would have just been a Hendrix copy yeah. if, if I tried to play his music I mean I would have been a bad copy you know yeah what's that aura like that feeling of like somebody who's just above you know it's transcending. I mean, it really, it affected me. The first time I saw Hendrix play, I was in Houston. And uh, and and I walked out of there wanting to quit playing music. Mm. I said, what's the point? I'll, I'll, I'll never be able to do this. And I had a manager who was a hell's angel at the time who was living in Texas. And he, he sat me down for two hours that night and explained to me that it wasn't about what they were doing. It was about what I felt. Yeah. And I stayed in it. I'm really glad I did. My family didn't like it much. But. Yeah. And finally, what's your favorite album ever recorded? Tough, but Axis Bold as Love, maybe. Mm. Maybe. Yeah. I mean, that period of time, I mean, Sgt. Pepper's was incredible. The White Album, you know, I listened to in one sitting the whole night. Uh, we listened to it over and over. There's so many great records. Hendrix had an effect on me that others didn't because he was intergalactic in a way in his approach to the instrument and his sense of freedom. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know how to put it any other way. Wonderful. Well, uh, the CD is out. You can buy it and listen to it. Uh, Thank you very much for dropping by, Stoppy. Thanks for having me. Maybe some week we will write uh, lyrics for this theme song we have here that I think you're interesting that you're listening to under our closing credits. I'm Todd Vandorf, the host and executive producer of I Think You're Interesting. Vox Podcasting is headed up by Marty Moe and Jackie Goldstein. Our executive producer of audio is Nishat Kerwa. 
Our sound designer is Miles Yule. Logo design is thanks to Victor Ware, Crystal Stevens, and Georgia Cowley. Our production manager is Alex Allreich. Our production coordinator is Carrie Clements. Our audio engineering and post-production are thanks to P3 Post. We recorded this week's episode in the lovely Village Workspace's podcast studio. Our editor is Peter Leonard. Our recording engineer is Drew Williams. If you would rate, review, and subscribe to this show on Apple Podcasts or Stitcher, or, you know, whatever your podcast platform of choice is, Spotify, you can find us on Spotify. If you would do that, that helps us climb the charts. It helps us get great guests. It really helps people get the word out about the show. Uh, if you have comments on it, you can leave them in a review. That'd be great. Or you can email them to me at Todd at Vox.com or the show at ityi.podcast itye.podcast at vox.com you can follow me on twitter instagram social media platforms of your choice at tvoti to Vodi. we will be back next week with a new guest from the world of arts and culture media and entertainment somebody who i think is interesting until then make sure that if you're having like really small scale lifestyle problems just get a little acoustic guitar in there enhance the cinematic quality make it feel a little more like you know this is everyday down-to-earth problems 